Now, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard someone online or on TV or in person ever try and make the argument that Jesus Christ did not exist? Anybody ever heard that? Okay. Yeah, a good number of us. All right, well, I want to assure you all that when you hear someone try and make this argument, what it shows is that that person simply hasn't done any research on the subject. They're just repeating a talking point that they've heard before. In fact, the, the reality is the historical evidence that Jesus Christ existed, well, the evidence, it's, it's incredible. Let me give you an example. We have at least 43 historical sources that refer to Jesus, which were written within 150 years of his life. 43 historical sources. Now, of course, skeptics are going to dismiss anything written by the Lord's disciples. You know the disciples, the eyewitnesses of the Lord. We'll dismiss those. They'll also tend to dismiss anything written by someone who was a Christian. So for the sake of argument, let's say we, we just put those sources to the side for a second. We would still have ten historical sources that refer to Jesus, which were written within 150 years of his lifetime. That includes sources written by the Jewish historian Josephus, or the great Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus. Now, I understand some of us might be here thinking to ourselves, well, Andrew, ten sources, that's not a lot. So think of it this way, by way of comparison, Tiberius Caesar was the Roman Caesar during the life of Jesus. We have about nine historical sources that refer to Tiberius Caesar, written within 150 years of his lifetime. Now, no one doubts that Tiberius Caesar existed. But if we have more written records about Jesus, why would anyone doubt that Jesus existed? In fact, if you didn't have the Gospels, if you just took those ten non-Christian historical sources about Jesus, this is the information you would have. You ready for it? you would learn that a man named Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. And that this Jesus, he was a virtuous man. In fact, you would learn that he is said to have worked wonders among the people. And that many people proclaimed him to be the Messiah. You would learn that that same Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate on the eve of a Jewish Passover. You would learn that at the time of Jesus' death, there was an earthquake and great darkness. You'd also find in those sources that the disciples of Jesus later believed that Jesus rose from the dead and were willing to die for that belief. And that the resulting message of Christianity spread quickly and that those early Christians worshipped Jesus Christ as God. Huh. Well, you know what that sounds like? Sounds like the things that are written in the Bible. But these are details that were recorded by unbelievers, including some who detested Christianity. See, the point is that despite the talking point of some skeptics, the historical evidence that Jesus was a real figure in history, that evidence is overwhelming. Now that means that the honest question is not, did Jesus exist? The honest question is, who is Jesus? Who is he? There are a lot of ideas about who Jesus is. The Hindus and the Buddhists, they believe that well, Jesus was a wise and holy man, a good teacher. Uh, the Muslims believe that Jesus was just a prophet. The Mormons believe that Jesus is uh, that he's a God. He's not the God, he's a God. 
So good luck figuring that one out. And the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is a created being. And of course, there are some who believe that Jesus is a figment of our imagination. But as Christians, we know and believe that not only did Jesus exist, but that he is, in fact, the Son of God. And as we saw last week, if you were here with us last week, we saw that we believe in one God as Christians. We believe in one God. And we believe that our God is triune, which means that our God is one as to essence and three as to persons. The members of the Trinity are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons being of the same essence. Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity. Now, for more on that, if you weren't here last week, because I'm not going to talk as much about the Trinity today as last Sunday, I encourage you to go online. You can check out what we covered in last week's sermon. But what this means is that we as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ is God. That's what we believe. Now, believers, we need to understand who Jesus is so that we can understand who Jesus is not. Church, Beware of the many attempts happening today to turn our Savior into someone palatable to today's culture. People will say that Jesus was a socialist of some sort, or that he was about redistributing wealth, or that Jesus was too loving to be judgmental of sin. He didn't say anything about sin. See, people are taking Jesus and trying to turn him into their own image. And the sad thing is that many professing Christians are following suit. Believers, don't make Jesus more like you when we are supposed to become more like him. Do not fall for these man-made images of Jesus that are popping up all around our country and around the world. We need to recognize Jesus for who he is. And Lord willing, that's what we'll do this morning. This morning, we're going to be talking about why we believe in the Son of God. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Now, as we've done in some recent Sundays, we're going to be jumping around a little bit, so I'm going to encourage you to follow along as best you can and to jot down some of the references as well that I mentioned so you can look them up at home. John chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to use one of those Bibles here in the sanctuary, under the seat in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 860. Page 860, John chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 1. What I want us to see first is, what does the Bible say about who Jesus is? John chapter 1, verse 1, we find this. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pause here. Keep your place in John chapter 1 because we're going to return to this chapter. Now, John is talking about Jesus when he refers to the Word here. That becomes more and more clear as you read chapter 1. And what do we learn first about Jesus? What do we learn about Jesus in this passage? First, we learn that Jesus was with God in the beginning. 
Before all things were made, Jesus was already there. Why? Well, it's because Jesus is uncreated. He's eternal. It's because Jesus is God. I mentioned last week very briefly that God the Father is the architect of creation. And what we find here is that Jesus is the agent of creation. Jesus was their creation. He was doing that which only God can do, making all things out of nothing. See, the Bible is clear that Jesus is God. It's good for us to know this. It's good for us to understand, too, that the divinity, the deity of the Savior is not some invention of the church, as many Jews have tried to claim. In fact, even the Hebrew Scriptures point to the divinity of the Messiah. Consider what the Hebrew Scriptures say, and what we refer to as the Old Testament. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, says this, in prophesying about the Messiah, it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. You see, Scripture is clear that the Messiah, the Savior, is no mere man or created being. His origins are from ancient times, from of old. Why? Because he's the creator. He himself is uncreated. Jesus is God. Well, then there are some who will say, yeah, well, it's not like Jesus ever claimed to be God. Have you ever heard someone say that? But that's not true. So what did Jesus say about himself? Well, in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus, he was talking with some of the Jews. And in John 8, 58, we read this. It says, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus said that, he wasn't claiming to just be really old when he said, before Abraham was born, I am. No, he was using the name that God had used to reveal himself to his people, and that name is I Am. Now, that was clear to the Jews because they picked up stones to try and kill Jesus. But again, in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said this to the Jews. He said, I and the Father are one. Well, this was such a clear claim to divinity that, again, the Jews, they picked up stones to kill him. Jesus very clearly claimed to be God. Now, this is important for us to understand because this is why many Christians, most notably C.S. Lewis, who many of us have heard of, have made the argument that, you know, you cannot say that Jesus was simply some good and moral teacher. Because based on the things Jesus said, if he is not God, then Jesus was either a liar or he was just an, an insane person. Because the only other alternative is that Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. But you know, if that's true, if Jesus is God, <laughs> then surely there'd be some proof, right? There'd be some proof of this. I don't know, you know, like, like his miracles, when he did things that only God could do. Even those anti-Christian historians in the first and second centuries wrote that Jesus was said to have worked wonders, even if they didn't believe that was true. Which leads us to ask, what? Why weren't Jesus' miracles debated and debunked by the Lord's many opponents during his life or immediately afterward? Have you ever wondered that? Well, it's probably because his opponents would have a hard time with that. What with all the witnesses and the healed people walking around? I'm going to give you some scriptures. We'll put these on the screen for you. 
During his time on earth, Jesus demonstrated his miraculous power over nature. When he turned water into wine, when he walked on water, when he calmed the storm, or when he gave the disciples the miraculous catch of fish. He demonstrated his miraculous power over illness when he healed the blind, the mute, the deaf, the leper, crowds of sick people. He proved his miraculous power over death. He raised the widow's son back to life. He raised the ruler's daughter and Lazarus as well. He proved his miraculous power over demons. He cast many demons out. And of course, the greatest proof of his power and divinity was the Lord's own resurrection, which was witnessed by his 11 apostles, many of his women followers, and 1 Corinthians 15 tells us it was also witnessed by 500 believers at one time. Sounds like a good bit of proof to me. But okay, what about the proof of, of prophecy? Jesus fulfilled many Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. We'll put these on the screen for you too in case you'd like to jot some of them down. He fulfilled prophecy including well, the place of the Messiah's birth, the ancestry of the Messiah, Prophecies concerning the Messiah's suffering, his betrayal, his crucifixion, and even his resurrection. Now, as one Christian apologist said, he wrote, there are about 120 distinct prophecies of the first coming of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And the chances of all these prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one man is one chance in 84 followed by 131 zeros. So for you visual learners like me, this is that number. The chance of someone fulfilling that many prophecies, one person doing so in their life, is one in whatever that is, right there. Well, then there's the proof of the perfect life that Jesus lived. You know, even when Jesus' accusers sought to put him to death, it was only their claims of blasphemy that they could rely on to, to drum up support among the people. But... But that charge would only be true if Jesus wasn't, in fact, God. In other words, they couldn't point to any wrongdoing in his life. And Jesus had lived on the earth for over 30 years. Well, then there's the proof of his teaching, the teaching that Jesus brought, which was described as being unlike that of the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees. Nah, Jesus taught with power and with authority. You know, kind of like we would expect God in the flesh to do. This is why Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that the Son, the Son of God, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Jesus' words, actions, and power proved His divinity, and people were blessed as God walked among them when Jesus came to this earth. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 9, He said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. We're still in John chapter 1. Let's, let's look at that again. Continue to understand who, who Jesus is. John chapter 1, verse 14 now. Let's jump there. It says, The Word became flesh and made Him dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about, when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. 
Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. See, there's something else that I want us to understand about who Jesus is. Jesus is not only fully God, but when he came to this earth, he took on a human body and a human nature, becoming fully God and fully man. And this was necessary. You see, in his humanity, Jesus encountered well, the things that we do. He got tired, got hungry, got thirsty. And more than all that, he faced temptation just like we do. But Jesus never sinned. And you see, because of his perfect humanity, Jesus was able to take our place and our punishment on the cross. And because of his perfect divinity, he powerfully rose from the dead. And so we as Christians affirm that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Because both of these things, they're necessary for him to be our perfect Savior. Even though these might be tough things for us to wrap our minds around and understand. In fact, there was a Christian who was once with a, a group of people, including a group of very scholarly individuals, and they looked at that Christian and asked him if he could comprehend this teaching that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And that Christian looked at them and said, no. He said, I can't. He said, I can't comprehend that. And then he said, and I would be ashamed to acknowledge Jesus as my Savior if I could comprehend him. He said, if I could, Jesus wouldn't be greater than me. And such is my sense of sin and consciousness of my own inability to save myself that I need a superhuman Savior, one so great and glorious that I can't comprehend him. Amen. And that, my friends, is Jesus. Who is he? He is the divine, eternal Son of God who took on flesh. And because of these truths, now we need to move on to understand who is Jesus to us as Christians? Who is Jesus to us? Well, first and foremost, believers, Jesus is our Savior. The main reason that Jesus came to this earth was to save us from our sins and save us from the penalty of hell. That was the main purpose that he came. The Bible is very clear about this. In fact, even before Jesus was born, an angel came to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and said that Jesus would save his people from their sins. Galatians chapter 3 says that Jesus came to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus himself said this in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to save us from sin and from hell. An old story about a painter who wanted to capture the essence of who Jesus is. So he poured himself into the work. And before finishing his painting, he made a detailed sketch of the Redeemer's face. But he decided afterwards that he needed some feedback. So he went and he found the landlady's young daughter and he asked her to look at the sketch and tell him who he thought the picture depicted. Well, the girl looked at it and she said, well, that right there, he looks like a good man. 
The artist knew that he had failed miserably. So he threw the sketch away, prayed about it, poured himself into making another sketch. He went back to the young girl and asked her again to tell him who the picture was depicting. She looked, and this time she said, well, this looks like a man who suffered a lot. Still, the artist knew that he had missed his mark. So he threw it away, and he went and he, he prayed for a long time. And then he poured himself into this third sketch. And when he brought it to the young girl, she looked at it, and this time the girl gasped, and she said, that, well, that's the Lord. That's Jesus. You know, a lot of people have the wrong picture of Jesus in their minds. Jesus is much more than a good man or someone who suffered a lot. He is much more than many people in this world make him out to be. And today, many people in our world, including many professing Christians, have tried to make our Savior out to be some sort of weak, passive, frail Savior. Uh, That's the picture that they have of him in their minds. They say that Jesus was soft on sin. Jesus would never have judged the things that we do, is what they say. What are they talking about? On more than one occasion, Jesus told people to go and sin no more. Jesus called sinners sick people in need of a doctor because they needed to be saved. On many occasions, Jesus talked about the reality of hell. Understand, Jesus left his throne in heaven to come and be brutally put to death for us. Because sin is so grievous in the sight of God that the only just punishment for it is to be eternally separated from God in a place of torment called hell. But in the Lord's excruciating pain on the cross, he bore the crushing weight of our sin so that through faith in him we could be set free. Our Savior is not some weak individual who's caught off guard and killed. No. He left the glory of heaven to willingly lay his life down. Weak people don't do that. And weak people definitely don't die for their enemies. Jesus died for everyone, and he did it willingly. Look, my point is this. You can have whatever weak Savior the world is talking about, but I'm taking my Savior, the real one, the one who moved heaven and earth to defeat death and the devil, the one who overcame sin, and the one who rescues everyone from hell who comes to him in faith. That's my Savior. And as Christians, we believe in him. We believe in the Son of God because the Son of God is the one who saved us from hell. He made us citizens of heaven, and he made us new creations in him. Believers, that's who Jesus is. First and foremost, he is our Savior. And if you are here and you can call him your Savior, then believers, we should also be proud to call Jesus our Lord. And that's the next thing that Jesus is to the Christian. He is our Lord. During World War II, the king of Denmark was known to ride around on his horse in the city streets unaccompanied by guards, even when enemy soldiers were around. One of the legends that resulted from this is that one day a German soldier saw him doing this and asked someone in the crowd, why? Why, why does your king ride around without any bodyguards? And that citizen looked at the soldier and said, all of Denmark is his bodyguard. Now that story is considered fictional, but it's agreed that the story sprang forth from the admiration that the people came to have for their king. And what should not be fictional is the love that Christians have for Jesus, who is our Savior, and therefore should be the king of our lives. Believers, Jesus isn't just our Savior who rescued us from hell. He's also supposed to be our Lord, who guides and directs our lives. He's supposed to be the one that we follow and the one we obey. 
2 Corinthians 5.15 says this. It says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Believers, we're supposed to live for him. Yet sadly, so many Christians have this idea that they should separate their faith from how they live. They should put their faith on a shelf and separate it from how they live at home, how they live at work, how they live in their relationships. They do this because they're afraid they're going to offend someone. Believers, Jesus died for us. Our whole lives should be about him. We should have the same mindset as the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote this in Galatians chapter 2. He said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus is our Savior, which means that he is the Lord and King of our lives, and Christians, we need to live like it. I spent a lot of time wrestling this week with the things that I wanted to share about Jesus because there's so much that we could say about the Lord. I wanted to spend time talking about how Jesus is our great high priest, how he's the only mediator between God and man. I wanted to talk about how he's our good shepherd. And Lord willing, one day soon we will cover some of these. But today, today, it's here that I believe we need to evaluate our hearts, believers, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now look, maybe, maybe money and greed, maybe these aren't a struggle for you, but maybe, maybe believer, maybe something else has taken priority in your life over Jesus Christ? Is he the one that you are serving and following? He's our Savior. That's good. The question is, is he also the Lord of our lives? Every area of our lives. Because if we realize today, believers, if we realize that Jesus isn't the Lord of every area of our life, that we're not following him in all things, if we realize that we've allowed other things to become more important than living obediently before him, then we need to repent of those things. And then we need to fix our eyes on him and follow him instead of chasing all these other things in life. We need to give to him that place that is rightfully his in our lives, that place of king and lord. Listen to what Colossians 2 says. Colossians 2, 6 through 7 says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. I pray that that would be true of all of us, church. Christians, we believe in the Son of God because of the testimony of Scripture, because of the sacrifice of our Savior, and because of the fact that He has forever changed our eternity and our lives. And if we do believe in Jesus, then that should change the way that we are living. That should change how we're living our lives. 
And it's because of that that the truth I pray we'd all walk away with this morning is that if we have been saved by the Son of God, then we need to know Him, we need to follow Him, and we need to tell others about Him. Okay, if we've been saved by the Son of God, we need to know Him, we need to follow Him, and we need to tell others about Him. Let me explain to you what I mean. Do we really, do we really know Jesus in our lives, believers? I want each of us to consider that. Do, do we seek to get to know Jesus more and more every day through prayer, through praise, through reading Scripture? You see, I ask that because I understand some of us might feel pressed for time in our days. And if so, let's consider the fact that, you know, Jesus spent 33 years away from heaven to go through the pain of the cross. So it seems fitting that we should spend some time with him each day. Do do we follow Jesus in our lives? Believers, do we really? Whoever or whatever consumes the majority of our thoughts and desires, that's what we're following. And if it isn't Jesus, it isn't worth it. And who are we telling about him? Who in our lives are we telling about Jesus Christ? If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the only way we can be rescued from hell, then why would we keep that to ourselves? Christians, we encourage all of us to evaluate these three things this morning. Before we leave, before we go and get caught up in the things that we have going on today, let's actually evaluate, do we know Jesus? Are we seeking to know him more? Are we following him? Are we following someone or something else? And are we telling others about him? Maybe for some of us today, during this final prayer, this final song, this invitation song. Maybe we need to go to the Lord in prayer about these things. Maybe there are some things we need to repent of. Maybe we need to come to the altar and pray so that other Christians can surround us and pray over us too. However you need to respond, believer, understand that we always need to recognize that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord. And we need to live that way. And if you're here and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, You've never given him your life. You've never gone to him for the forgiveness of your sins. You cannot say for sure that you have been forgiven by him. Friend, if that's true for you, then please understand, Jesus has been in heaven waiting your whole life to save you, to forgive you of all your sins, to pardon you from the penalty of hell, to give you eternal life, to bring you into his family. He wants to do that. He already paid the penalty for you. The question is, Will you give your life to him? The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And friend, if you have never done that, we want to give you the opportunity to do that before you leave. Would you pray with me? Friend, if that's where you're at, if you're here and Jesus isn't your Savior, understand during this final song, you can come to the front. We can sit together and talk about whatever questions you might have. We can pray together. But if you're ready right now to give your life to Jesus Christ, I don't want you to have to wait another moment. If you're ready to do that, understand that you can go to Jesus in prayer where you're sitting. And if you go to him in faith, if you give your life to him, if you accept this free gift of salvation and forgiveness, then friend, I promise you on the authority of God's word, Jesus will save your soul. He'll become your Savior, and you can start living for Him today. If you'd like to do that, you can follow me in a simple prayer like this. Dear Jesus, 
I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've done bad things. I've broken your commands. But Jesus, I know that you died for me. I believe that you didn't stay in the grave, but that you rose from the dead. And Jesus, today I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins and to be my Savior. Today I'm giving you my life. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that if there's anyone who made that decision this morning, they would tell someone before they leave. This is a church filled with people that would love to rejoice with them. Your word says that every time a sinner repents, heaven breaks out in rejoicing. So we believe your church should too. If there's anyone here who's still on the fence, they're not sure about these things. They have questions. I pray they'd be willing to come and talk with me during this final song or find someone before they leave. And Father, for those of us who have made this decision, who've given our lives to Jesus, help us to evaluate our lives right now before we leave. Help us to ask ourselves, do we know our Lord? Do we know Him? Are we following Him? Are we telling others about Him? Father, I thank You because I know that there are many believers in this room who can answer those three questions with saying yes. And I know that there are also some of us who need to work on these things. So I pray that Your Spirit would convict our hearts, would reveal to us those things that we need to work on, and would lift us up as family in Christ, who would care for one another, who would bear one another's burdens, and that we would all pursue you together as a church family. Father, we love you. But you proved long ago when you sent your son that you love us more. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.